we need to address the housing crisis. We need to address how we excavate and you know deal with natural ecosystems as we build, protect the ocean and our natural environment for our own health. You know, it's it's not just about yeah we're protecting the fish in the bay, you know, and the trees and whatnot, and you know, the wildlife, but it's really for our own health and benefit. We live such a fast-paced life, always on our screens, day and night. You know, we have so many pressures coming at us. Yeah, take a walk out in nature and see how different you feel. It does it is medicine? Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired, and please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am very happy to welcome Andrew Corey to the My Fourth Act podcast. Miami's Andrew Corey is a Jamaican-born serial entrepreneur who champions equitable neighborhoods. He is the CEO and founder of Herblandia, a needs analysis platform for real estate development. Andrew hosts his widely distributed podcast, also titled Herblandia, where he focuses on social impact entrepreneurship within urban development. In 2016, Andrew also created and began hosting the annual Urbanism Summit, a conference and event series designed to cultivate transformative ideas for new urbanism with a strong emphasis on people and the planet. Hello, Andrew. Hey, uh, how are you? Thanks for having me. Wonderful to have you here. Just as a, before we speak for our audience, Andrew and I have crossed paths a few times in Miami. We both live here, so we've had some social contact outside of here, which is what prompted me to want to have this conversation. Now, when you, because you're from Jamaica, yep. I'm curious when you were a young man or teenager, young boy growing up, and people asked you what you wanted to do with your life. Like, what were you thinking about? Young Andrew. Young Andrew. <laughs> Young Andrew. Uh, well, there are quite a few things that, you know, shaped this answer. One of them is that my last name is Quarry. And if you know anything about Jamaican sports and the history of Jamaican sport, our most famous runner is Donald Quarry, which I, I share the same last name with him. People always ask me, are you related? I just kind of run with it. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. But it's a very small island. So I was expected to be a runner. You know, mm-hmm. but I, I did not have the, the athleticism at that age. Uh, I was it was not my interest. I thought I wanted to be a runner just to please people. However, I had a really bad accident uh, at a young age, falling out of a really tall tree, and that kind of put any end uh, put an end to any aspirations as far as like running. Yeah, because it took a very long time for me to recover from that. So, yeah, initially that's where it started, but. When I came out of the United States, that changed into a lot of the creative feel. So music, audio engineering, that's what actually sparked the fire in me. And that's what I pursued. Is yours almost a classic story where you grew up in the islands, but you said to get the education I want, I'm going to go to the States? Or how else, what got you to Florida and Miami? My mom, Gerthel Smith, (laughs) she essentially in the 70s, uh, I think it was at 79. She left Jamaica uh, for England 
And this is a classic story. The women migrate to England, try to make a better life for their family, you know, get a job, send money back home, clothes, you name it. But she didn't stop in England. She decided to continue to Canada because her end goal was to be here in the U.S., um, bring her kids along with her. So we did not make that trip to England. It was many years later, reunited with my mom, that you know, she have, after she got established, she was able to bring each one of her kids over on a visa, on a path to citizenship. So that occurred for us. My sister and I were the two last ones to be here. We're a total of five, four boys, one girl. My sister and I, two youngest of the, the group. And we got here in 88, August 20th, of 1988 is when we landed on Miami and we grew up on Miami Beach, South Beach. And that's how it all got, you know, that's how the story uh, kind of started when it comes to uh, being here in the U.S. I appreciate how you mentioned the specific date. You know, I'm, I'm from Germany and I came over here when I was 16 with a classic crossing across the ocean on a boat. And my dad was already here and we passed the Statue of Liberty and he was waiting, you know, in the West 50s, picking us up. And I'll never forget the day that I totally know. And but the entrance was disappointing, I have to say. Like Manhattan in the 50s looked grungy and run down and nothing like the TV shows I'd seen in Germany. What I saw didn't match my fantasy of where I thought I was ending up. There are many things in life, huh? Sometimes. There are many things in life. Now you you moved into you you did a lot of work in marketing and you you talked about the creative fields. How did you decide where to play in that area? Because there are many different ways to do marketing. All of that's competitive. There are other people doing the same things that we do, and and we're good, but they're also good. Like, how did you find your niches where you were? So interestingly enough, I did my studies around audio engineering, and as a result of that, you know, I had to take some. Of course, tune in your ears. So you had to take up an instrument. For me, it was uh, keyboard at the time mm-hmm. and classical voice singing. Went to my studies here at Miami Dade College, went to FIU for the additional two. And somewhere along the way, I decided to just stop and just go straight into the profession. Did an internship with uh, Island Records at South Beach Studios in Miami Beach. At the time, it was in the Marlin Hotel, if anyone is familiar with Miami Beach. It's a classic hotel, Art Deco Hotel of 12 and Collins. And it was a very amazing experience because then I became the chief engineer for one of the first uh, studios that uh, that were transitioning from mostly analog gear to now digital to hardest recording and uh, pro tools and things like that. It was like a you know, kid in a candy store uh, for me, just basically having all, all the, the paintbrushes and paint that I wanted to paint my sound and being on really cool sessions, helping to record. Top of that, Aside from the in-studio stuff, I was doing live shows. So I did um, a couple seasons at the Actors Playhouse. Mm-hmm. got to do the front of house music, sorry, mixing for one of my favorite shows, just as uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. Uh, that was part of the 1998-99 series. Then did a Buddy Holly story. Did a, a stint at the Colony Theater on Miami Beach for uh, Don Quixote, uh, you know, Adventures in Miami. That was the name of the show. I did this for a while, and of course, there was marriage, and then there were kids, and that changed everything. <laughs> so, you know, the late nights or being in the studio this for hours on end, it just really shifted a lot. So, uh, there's a lot of reinventing of oneself that happened, and that uh, for me, uh, how I got into marketing was, you know, I had an opportunity 
actually through a customer when I was working for Apple, uh, working at the Apple store, said, hey, let's let's put together a company and um, do uh, advertising. Let's do movie theater advertising because I sell the movie theater time you know, before the show starts. Yeah. So that 20-minute uh, pre-roll, we sell local ads and can you produce them? Yeah. I'm, I'm like, sure. You know, I didn't have any experience as already in video production and just a digital recording. And so I just kind of really dove into it, self-taught, you know, really started to help these clients, these advertisements in the movie theater before the movie starts. They would ask me for other things like, hey, what do you do? Do you do uh, websites? Do you do, you know, Facebook marketing, social media marketing, things like that? Of course, I wouldn't, I wasn't going to turn any of that down. So again, it was a lot of self-taught, diving in, or just trying to understand a feel, um, just reaching out to people in a way that, you know, you try to really kind of get to the heart and the matter of their who they are and try to put out the best possible kind of product or service to them. So that's what I did. What strikes me is I'm listening to you. A lot of it was emergence, things emerge, you know, things came to you and then you dove in and did it, which is uh and that's, I think, already sort of an entrepreneurial mindset, the willing that we're just going to give it a try. But before we go further, because most of our listeners are not from Miami, you made some wonderful Miami references, the Actors yeah. Playhouse, the Colony, and, and Miami is sort of this big, global, sexy city now, or that's the brand, but you're talking about a Miami beach of the 90s, of uh, which to many people was the heyday of Miami Beach before it became destroyed, right? Yeah. By yes. commercialism. But w- yes. would you give our listeners a little snapshot of what do you remember from Miami Beach in the 90s before it's become what it is today? I remember distinctly that when we entered, what, 90, 1990, 91? I graduated high school in 92, by the way, Miami Beach mm-hmm. Center High School. There was a, a palpable feel of you know creativity that was just bursting. So yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the artists, a lot of my neighbors, you know, were artists were doing amazing work in, in so many different fields. So the arts for me, you know, the Philharmonic was still around, you know, the Jackie Gleason Theater, which is, you know, now known as the Fillmore. And that's actually where my graduation took place at the yes. Jackie Gleason Theater <laughs> so when it was named that. There was a renaissance of sort. And of course, you know, aside from the, the nightclubs and whatnot, there was a lot of just uh, creativity flowing everywhere and great in the little spots, restaurants, great place like Jazz uh, Bar, Van Dykes. I remember that on Lincoln Road. Of course, uh, the birth of the New World Symphony, which is a, a, a symphony in academia. That's yeah. amazing. Michael Tilson Thomas. I remember just being able to you know, walk over to the sunrise, moonrise, enjoy those times before Ocean Drive became ruined by, you know, cars going up and down, playing loud music (laughs) until, you know, local city government had to deal with that. But um, it was a fun time. But I'm also thinking, and then I, I, because I want to talk about urbanism and your current interests in a moment, I I remember creativity is easier or to be a creative artist when you live in a place that that's not overpriced yet, where you haven't been outpriced. And the more expensive something becomes, the more we tend to exclude the artists and the creatives because they can't be there anymore, even though people move there because they want it to be like artists and the creatives, right? Isn't that so part of the irony of all of that? Yeah, uh, you see that a lot. you know, the arts, the creative space usually spark 
a certain community vibrancy in neighborhoods. And most artists tend to go, of course, where they can afford rent. You know, they'll, they'll bunk out in a warehouse. Uh, they'll create all these little communities amongst themselves. Once that catches, you know, the eye of a developer, the next thing is to just buy up a portfolio of properties around them. And the unfortunate thing, as I say, the irony of it is that most of these folks don't get to stay in those neighborhoods because now they're priced out because they're now in a popular area, uh, which they help to create. So, you know, I've always tried to, to have this conversation with developers at the conference or whenever we're talking one-on-one is that you have to think about your give back mechanism, you know, whether it's building artist lofts that are affordable, keep them as a part of the narrative, like for, you know, places like Wynwood, uh, keep them as a part of the narrative. You know, there used to be an art walk around Wynwood that really doesn't happen anymore. What if you actually built those art lofts that were live workspaces for the artists to be able to live there at an affordable rent? Then you have them open up their studios once a month. Now you brought a beautiful thing to the neighborhood. You brought them exposure. It's a great long-term benefit for your brand anyway. So sometimes they don't, they're very short-sighted. They just look at the bottom line. And, and unfortunately, that's happened a lot. You just, again, for listeners from not from Miami, uh, Wynwood is, uh, was a very industrial neighborhood of warehouses with murals. And uh, first time I went to Wynwood, I remember there was one restaurant, Joey's, where you would go to eat. Yep. And uh, Wynwood today, most of the warehouses have been torn down or are being torn down. And it's it's the very thing that made it cool. It's, it's literally been destroyed. And I remember going to the art walk. It was like being a Fellini movie. I mean, it was thronging with people. It was wild. It was mm-hmm. untamed. It was a happening. You, you were interested in the art, but you wanted to just get the energy of people yeah. everywhere thronging. Yeah. And that changes. Now, now talk to us about, because we're already in it, but how did your interest, your conscious interest in urbanism and what I would call more intentional urban development, how did that emerge for you? This emerged as I jumped into the startup world in tech back in around 2012, 14, mm-hmm. around there, where my first startup was focused on marketplace that I built to connect freelance writers and journalists with marketing agencies that need content written for them. So like on-demand uh, write-in. I noticed as I was, you know, really having conversations with other founders, how difficult it was to acquire funding here, capital here, mentorship. It was a difficult time because I know we talk about Miami as a tech hub these days, and a lot of that has gotten to a fever pitch after um, the start of COVID. 2020, a lot of people moved there. But back then, we were still a small group of us sticking together, trying to figure out a way and how do we help build this ecosystem? So I started a series of talks. It was called uh, Miami's a Tech Hub, Real versus Hype, All right, because we wanted to get cut through the hype uh, and all the, the press releases and what was not happening, what we knew was happening on the back end. So we would have these forums and discussions, and they were very well attended, sometimes a little bit heated and controversial because there's always one side who's like, oh, you know, yes, we have a, a tech hub, Miami's thriving, and the other side, well, I could give you the stats to show you that we are not thriving yet. It's not that, it's not that we are not going to get there, but we're a long ways off. But we should definitely continue to build. After after seeing that successfully happening, you know, these community meetings, uh, these uh, people chiming in from all different sides, the way I curate is like I try to bring, you know, 
the well-known and the unknown together, the activists, the artists, the investor, you know, the, the, maybe the politician, people who are making policy. I, I try to stack panels that way so that people can have a voice in many different lanes, right? So that we, we're not just here in a one-sided sort of a, a talking head situation. Once I saw the success of that, I decided, well, let me just open this up beyond tech. And what affects us most than where we live, right? And and how places are designed. And that's urbanism and, and more importantly, new urbanism. So I decided to start the urbanism um, summit back in 2016, 17. Uh, the first location we did that was with the help of the Miami Design District, DACRA, amazing group. And that's how we got started because I wanted to help people engage civically, you know, in their community, uh, but also bring out the players who are actually designing, literally drawing the box that's going to be called their block. Because most people don't are not really tuned into who are the urban planners that actually decides, uh, along with developers, zoning and policy, how their cities are drawn and designed. So we, I wanted to bring that exposure and then that, you know, uh, education. You used the word just a couple of minutes ago. You talked about curating conversations. And and as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm getting this real sense that you thrive on bringing people together, putting people in conversation, people who normally wouldn't talk to each other. And that's part of wanting to be a catalyst for change. Did you always have that side of you that wanted to do that? Or did that emerge at some point in your life? Um, I believe that this is a result of and part, part of my early upbringing, going to church. My grandmother used to take me to church. She uh-huh. used to go to Presbyterian church. You know, unfortunately, she passed uh, when I was very young, around nine years old. But I remember her, you know, hey, get dressed. We're all going to church. And, you know, within that context, you can't help but notice community. Mm-hmm. Okay, as it happens. I carry that along with me, even as I came to the state. At my high school, I started a Bible club. Uh-huh. It might be senior high school. <laughs> I got fought on it tooth and nails. You know, you can't have a Bible club. It's religious. I'm like, well, I think we're allowed to do this. And they did allow me to do it. So I got, would gather people. We'll talk about different subjects in life. And, you know, whoever wanted to join and just have a fun time uh, hanging in a non-pretentious or non-religious way. Because I, I like to say it's more than just about rituals, right? It's about yeah. relationships. And um, that's how it kind of evolved for me. You know, yeah, so I always had a heart. As a result of that, I believe, just wanted to see people come together, thrive. How do we help each other be, I think, more in a collective way rather than keep on focusing on this, what we call, what I like to call nowadays, our self-care generation, which means a very individualistic in our approach to, to life. When in reality, we are designed to be very much caring for each other. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. I'm thinking also, I'm listening to you, that you've always been one step ahead of the curve in Miami. Like you started things before they were big and possibly you were somebody who popularized ideas like the tech stuff that's a big thing right now. But you you started your conversations, gosh, like 10 years ago now. 
I'm curious, has somebody who's, again, a step ahead of things, how receptive have people been to your ideas and your thinking, to engaging with you, to having these conversations? I believe that that receptiveness comes at different stages where when you're just starting out, you may have your cool friends and good friends and people who are really close by you to support you, right? And then that catches on. But as further you get down the road with it, then the receptiveness is as a result of the track record. I've seen both. Uh, you know, this is a part of the process, right? Adoption, people finally buying into your vision. But it has been well received by the, some of the key players that I admire because they're, I wouldn't want to say, I want to be presumptuous and say, you know, taking a torch onward, but they're coming alongside asking my advice. My input is important to the process because the Urbanism Summit really is about us focusing on the issue of climate shifts that will continue to impact our cities. And we have to address population growth. So while we're addressing population growth, how are we designing with nature, in harmony with nature, addressing uh, you know, sea level rise and how we do architecture and development? Because Miami, obviously, I know we've talked about your audiences all over the place, but Miami has a unique issue. It's water from underneath and water from the bay. So in development, we have to rethink how we design our first floors, you know, how the roads are so that way the bays are protected and, you know, there's not necessarily seawalls, but maybe natural barriers, such as what we have here historically or mangroves. But we have to think about how we're designing cities and we have to do it in harmony with nature. And we have to work together in reducing our consumerism at such a fever fever pitch in, in, in everything that we do these days. You can order something at the click or a tap a few buttons, you know, from an app. And that just makes it so much easier for you to, you to go ahead and just consume, consume, consume without really thinking about upcycling and things like that. So the people who I want to reach is really those who are the change makers in their communities, whether you're an activist, a local activist, where you're the, the young architect or the old architect who, you know, ready to come onto the table and say, you know, what, we need to really re rethink the way we approach things because things are changing and we can't do this sustainably. Yes, I feel like there is quite a few uh, people here who have, who have been receptive and continue to champion this sort of idea of uh, equitable build, but also build with harmony in nature. So if you were to, I remember attending a wonderful lecture in our Basel event that very much addressed how people live in green space in urban environments. And it yeah. was wonderfully presented. And But immediately you're going to hear something, the audience went, well, that sounds great, but that'll yeah. never happen here. Right? The, yeah. The, yeah. Sounds great, but it'll never happen here. But if you were to just, let's forget about that, it'll never happen here. But based on all the conversations you've had, and you've yeah. talked to so many people through your podcast, through all the events you organize, and let's shamelessly focus on Miami as a prototype for other cities. If you had a magic wand and you could get developers to completely play by your yeah. passions, what would more new urbanism actually look like? How would people live differently if you could magically make it happen? Um, if I could magically make it happen, it has to first start with a mindset shift, right? If people are not willing to come to the, the table, 
then yeah, my magic wand would first to get you all to agree, get us all to agree on the idea that we need to address the housing crisis. We need to address how we excavate and you know deal with natural ecosystems as we build, protect the ocean and our natural environment for our own health. You know, it's it's not just about yeah, we're protecting the fish in the bay, you know, and the trees and whatnot, and you know, the wildlife, but it's really for our own health and benefit. We live such a fast-paced life, always on our screens, day and night. You know, we have so many pressures coming at us. Yeah, take a walk out in nature and see how different you feel. It does it is medicine? So we need to think through public placemaking in general in how we incorporate nature for for wellness. The same thing with architecture for wellness, because at the end of the day, it really does come down to our health and our well-being, your home and your place of domicile. It should be about your sanctuary, right? And where you get to reset or play in a way that's healthy. Obviously, the suburbs is not it. Uh, we can't give every single person that's going to live on this planet a, a single family home and expect that we have enough landmass to address that. That's going to run out. So we have to build for density. We have to build for town centers. We have to build for walkability, everything that has to do with new urbanism. And of course, you can credit the amazing and brilliant Andres Noani and a lot of the folks from DPZ and the, the Congress for, uh, for New Urbanism in championing these ideas uh, more than you know, 20, 30 years ago. So the tenets of new urbanism, walkability, you know, access to your entertainment, your food, low-impact transportation, but also make it smart transportation, right? So we need a lot of public transportation that focuses on moving people around the city in simple ways, but we need to give back the streets to the pedestrians as much as possible and reduce our use of uh, cars. And those are just some things. I'm chuckling with appreciation because in Hollywood, Florida, where I live, I'm, I'm involved with <laughs> community conversations around this. And it's so wonderful to hear you articulate that. What is your take on, you know, Florida, where we live, is a very popular state. It became even more popular for people to move to during the COVID pandemic, yeah. you know, and the fear that, and I am pro more density organized differently, as you say, but at what point does it become too many people? At what mm -hmm. point does it become too crowded? How does that get decided or how does that work itself out? What have you learned about that in, in your conversations? Well, when it comes to deciding who lives where and what gets zoned for what, the unfortunate issue at times is that politicians get elected for a short time, and by the time they get to implement their ideas, even if you've got you know you've gotten you know to their table, their desk, and have these conversations, they're out of power by that time, right? So you have to have stitch these terms together, the next person to help champion for those. So for those policies and those zone in for whatever different things you want to build. As far as when it gets too much, well, right now it is kind of, I would say we're dealing with a housing crisis. We have a lot of folks who are on the edge of uh, homelessness moving out of the state because of course they can't afford it. But the influx, influx of folks from different big cities, especially, you know, folks who are in tech, I mean, they're here. We've actually advertised for them to come here and they've moved and they can't afford the rent, and the rents have gone up significantly. Uh, yeah. People, have, you know, rents have gone up 30, 40%. And it's really affecting uh, everyone, uh, you know, especially folks who are local. Now, cost of living goes up, but the salaries have not. Uh, but when you're coming from, you know, big cities like New York and, you know, LA, San Francisco, whatnot, and you have that 
same pay and you're working remotely now, you, you can just easily go down to, again, brickle this local reference, any one of these uh, little pockets of community and buy an apartment cash. But the folks who have lived here for such a long time, I don't feel like we've taken care of the local ones. And we need to make sure that when we're inviting folks in, a lot of these tech companies are actually giving back with actually quality paying jobs. And of course, the universities, the schools, they need to also match, you know, the sort of talent that's coming here and what's required for these positions. So we have to really pipeline that sort of uh, thinking in matching those corporations and what their needs are going to be in the next couple of years, four years from now, but train up a really great ecosystem of tech people or logistics and trade. And, you know, Miami, Miami is notorious for all of these things that were known for these things. The state of Florida in general, I feel like you, you probably heard this been said before, but Miami is its own country. <laughs> of course, labeled as the capital of uh, Latin America, but it's a special place. And yes, we're very forward thinking and inviting tech and trying to build entrepreneurial hubs here. So that not just in tech, but uh, in a financial systems, you know, logistics and trade and whatnot. So yeah, it's going to take us a while, but as long as we're focused on people and housing people and getting people proper jobs to be able to maintain a quality life here, we'll be okay, but we're behind. But it's almost ironic to me that we're talking about housing and people being displaced and moving because just as you and I started to record, you let me know that you're in transition where you are right now. You left a place where you lived and you're fixing up a place where you're going to be temporarily. Describe to us what it's like to be in, in a place where you're going to be for a while, but probably not forever. You're at a friend's place. You're fixing up your room. Describe so just maybe your inner experience of being in transition with where you live right now. Yeah. So the beautiful thing about you know friendships, relationships, where you you know when you've um, established a community, you will have people to catch you if you yeah. need them to. Right. Not everyone has that. I feel for people who are either in a city without family. They don't have, you know, the resources around them as far as their friendships and, you know, community to actually help them through, whether it's, you know, just a transitional moment or they're really going through a tough time, no matter what it is. But it does give an appreciation for, you know, establishing yourself in a community because, yes, you never know when you're going to need to reach out to the village, so to speak, yeah. and cry for help and that they'll, they'll be there for you. And that's the human experience in general. I see this you know, you talk about housing and, and housing crisis, people who go from actually having a place or to have a, a life moment, an emergency, or something catastrophic happened in their life and they were just one paycheck away from going to the streets or shelter or something of that nature. But yeah, we have to always lead with empathy and compassion. And this is why it's important for us to all think through how we're designing and building and who we're designing and building for. Uh, we can't strictly just be about luxury in the city. We have to have a good mixed use of workforce housing and all those things that matter to broaden out the playing field a bit to give access. So since you are physically in transition, what I'm also thinking about, and this is sort of in the spirit of fourth act, which is a metaphor, stepping into new things at different stages in our lives, you've started a whole bunch of ventures already. So you clearly like to start things, are motivated to start things. As you look to the future, is there anything else emerging? Anything else you're going, this might be next, or this is a venture that's speaking to me, or something that you haven't done before and you want to do? 
Actually, one of the reasons for really appreciate the question because this is a time of transition in so many ways for me. Because uh, earlier this year, back in January, January eighth, I had just turned fifty. Happy five zeros did more than any other age uh, before a number. I really had a moment, like almost almost like a crisis. Like, yeah, I'm, I am fifty. You know, a lot of things could go really right or really wrong after this. I made it a point to say to myself, right now, just prioritize enjoying yourself, having fun, yeah. you know, with friends and family, with the things you like to do, go out to eat, dance, whatever, you know, enjoy art, music, love and music, as I've always done. But really, aside from the work of really trying to inspire others to do good and do well. And whether whichever vehicle you use that you use to do to accomplish that, whether it's in urbanism, or you're in finances, or I don't know, you're in the arts, you're an artist. Every one of us uh, can have some sort of a level of activism built into any of our talents. Aside from all those things, I, I really want to prioritize my health, having fun, joining myself, and as a result of that, I'm literally starting just a separate club among friends <laughs> that is <laughs> essentially yeah it's, it's not so serious but it's um it's a thing so to help with that but uh yeah it's certain things i enjoy but you know the, the summit and all those things i will continue to build in a tech space as well with Urblandia. Uh, see where it all goes well thank you so much for giving us a little glimpse into your world and, and what motivates and inspires you and what you care about I would imagine there are people listening to us who want to learn more about what you do and possibly even how they might get involved. Where would you like to direct them to, Andrew? Let's say it's uh, it's not very hard to find me. My name is pretty unique. Andrew Quarry, that's Q-U-A-R-I-E, at any social media handle, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram. I don't do Facebook anymore. LinkedIn, for short, professionally, you can reach me there as well, at Andrew Quarry. Herblandia currently have a, a splash page up. So if you go to Herblandia, uh, U-R-B-L-A-N-D-I-A.com, you'll be able to find an invite uh, request to the platform as we launch out. Um, of course, urbanismsummit.com, you'll find more about the conference. And that one should be coming up uh, later this year. So keep an eye out for that. Very cool. Thank you. And I wish you lots of fun with your friends and your new club and, and lots more dancing. Bye for now. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.